Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Hannah Vidin joins us today. She is a writer and a blogger and an expert in Old English. She has a new book out called The Word Horde, Daily Life in Old English. Our topic today, welcome Dr. Vidin. Hi, thanks for having me. All right. Well, uh, you know, you know, first, I, I, I love the topic of your book because, you know, I went to graduate school back in the 1980s. I didn't do Old English. I did, I, I, I ended up doing American literature. So I never really thought that I would be studying in that area. But uh, one requirement of the graduate school there in the 80s, uh, this was UCLA, was two courses in philology, uh, starting with Old English. And I, I, again, I went into 19th century literature, but I deeply appreciate having done it. I mean, that requirement had, uh, had us going into the grammar and some of the vocabulary of old and middle english we even ended up you know doing phonetic transcriptions of 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 shakespeare in that course and i i i look back now at requirements for the phd in english and i i think you rarely see a philology course required of everybody there uh well was that your experience yeah, I well, I got into old English kind of kind of by accident. I arrived at university my first year. I was already interested in studying English literature, but I didn't know what I wanted to specialize in in particular. And I actually ended up going to a foreign language um, sort of introductory session where, because um, I was thinking, oh, I'll take a foreign language while I'm at university. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to take. And at the foreign language uh, session, one of the professors actually talked about Old English as a possible language to learn. And this really surprised me because I thought, how could English be a foreign language? I'm a, you know, I'm a, a native English speaker. Mm-hmm. And so I was quite quite interested in learning about how that could be, and so I ended up taking, uh, you know, a semester in Old English grammar and vocabulary. And I had a really good teacher, and he was great at connecting the history to the literature of the time. And I went on to study Beowulf and do a lot of other Old English things. So yeah, it wasn't a requirement at all um, for doing an English degree, but it was something that just fascinated me. Um, yeah. Well, I, 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 again, I loved reading your book because of the way in which one of the things you point out is the way in which simple words can be a window into full 
ranges of of life and society. And I'll 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 you know give my little you know curmudgeonly point about how in you know in the United States uh, there was a push to shorten the PhD time. I mean, when I went, it was about seven and a half years on average. It took that long for people to come in and then get out with a doctorate. But, you know, a lot of that was coursework that I think really did deepen people's understanding of the literature. I mean, it's centuries before. And again, gave that generalist breadth, you know, the base that everyone uh, had to have. And that uh, uh, we've gotten the the humanities in the in the states have become heavily oriented toward contemporary, you know, twentieth uh, century and even twenty first century studies in in all the different humanities these days. And so your your book was refreshing. I'm to glad me you enjoyed it on, on that score. So if we get to the book, uh, you 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 open by calling Old English quote the language you thought you knew. What 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 do you mean by that? <laughs> Um, I think a lot of people assume that Old English refers to Shakespearean English, um, which I, you know, I talk about in my first chapter, because, I mean, really, all anything relative to now is old. So usually people think of what's the oldest thing that I've read in English, and often it's Shakespeare, sometimes it's Chaucer. So people think maybe Chaucer is Old English, but that's actually Middle English. And really, you don't read Old English unless you've taken a, a specialist course that teaches you the grammar and vocabulary, because it's, it's pretty much impossible to read otherwise, um, especially the poetry. So often people just haven't been exposed to, um, you know, Beowulf in the original. You've often read Beowulf in translation in school, yeah. but not Beowulf in the original. So yeah, that's why I called it that, because I... Yeah, I, I was just, it's, English seems like, I mean, for English speakers reading the book, it seems like, oh, this is a language that I know very well, but it, there are actually a lot of surprises if you look at the literature from a thousand years ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, I mean, for, again, this 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 probably sounds very, <laughs> very elementary to you, but uh, why is there such a break? between Old English and Middle English. How did Old English become Middle English? Yeah, well, Old English uh, was primarily ger based on Germanic languages that came from Northern Europe. And there's maybe, you know, 10% of the vocabulary is, is from other languages, mostly Latin. Um, so once you get into Middle English, you have the influence of romance languages more you have um the sort of roughly the period for old english is 650 to 1150 those are just sort of arbitrary dates but it's roughly when you can see the language um being a certain way and after the norman conquest there was increasingly more um more contact with you know french and there was more of an um there was more french coming into the language. So you can see in Middle English that influence. There's also a shift in the way language works from relying on inflection, the way grammar does, where you have different endings that mm -hmm. indicate what part of the sentence a word is, whether it's a subject or the object or whatever. 
And in Middle English, it's moved on significantly towards relying on syntax. So using word order to tell what part of speech things are. So those right. are some of the main differences you see is increased vocabulary from from French and um, and Latin as well, but also the um, the change in in grammar. Modern English is is it correct? About fifty. The vocabulary in modern English is about fifty percent French or Latin through French, and about fifty percent still Old English. Is that? <laughs> I wouldn't be able to tell you the numbers on that. I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah. I don't know exactly. I, I, I think it's, I think I remember that. Um, yeah. And Middle English into Modern English. What's that? That's roughly from the 14th to the 16th century. That that that's when that process takes place. Yeah, a, a bit later, maybe. So. <sighs> Modern English is sort of dated from around the end of the 15th century when um, the big, there's a big technology change in that um, in, in England, there's the printing press. So there's a lot more standardization in, um, in spellings and the way people communicate. So before that, everything was handwritten and you had not as many copies of a text. So um, from sort of place to place, there'd be a lot more variation in the language um, yeah. that people spoke. Yeah. Okay. When you go back to Old English, I mean, we have piles and piles of Middle English manuscripts. You note that we only really have only 200 manuscripts surviving that contain any actual Old English. Um in in them is that these these manuscripts are the main repository of what we know of old english is that right yeah um yeah this is a surprisingly small amount when you look at other bodies of literature that we have um that said i still haven't read all of the things that are written in old english so it can keep you busy for you know quite a while but yeah there's um there's also the Latin was being used at the time as well. So there are manuscripts from that time period from England that are written in Latin, but um, yeah, the old English that we have is, is limited to, as you say, like about like 200 manuscripts or the David Crystal uses the comparison of all of the old English texts that we have sort of single texts could be fit into 30 novels in length. Okay, uh, Hannah, let's get to some specifics. What is a rune, R-U-N-E? Runes were a kind of alphabet that were used um, to write words before the Latin or Roman alphabet came along, so the ABCs that we're familiar with. So they were used in, uh, in Northern Europe, in Scandinavia, and in, in England, is, or what now is England, it wasn't England at the time, but used there as well. Um, and they were primarily used for carving inscriptions into rocks and, and, and wood and things like that, which is why they have, they're composed of straight lines because if you're writing something, carving something into a rock, it's much easier if you're writing a straight line than if you're trying to do a letter S or an O or something like that. But the really neat thing about runes um, is that they don't represent, they, 
in modern English, when we have used the Latin alphabet, a letter represents a sound. And in Old English, the runes represent a sound and a concept. So we have the letter ash, which means ash, which in Old English is ash tree, but it also makes the ah sound. So when you find it in a text, it could mean either the sound or the concept. So they, they're quite interesting to play with. And even after the people start using the Latin or Roman alphabet more, um, there are writers who still include runes sort of in interspersed in some of their works, uh, I think because of the appeal of these, these special letters that can mean, can, can mean things beyond their, their sounds that they make. Right. Okay. The book, the word hoard. Uh, what, what is, why don't you give us an overall description of, of the book? Uh, it, it's got an interesting format uh, here, the, the, the layout with the vocabulary and then the division of words by different uh, areas of life. But give, give us a general summary of the book. Yeah, well, this book kind of grew out of my desire to share my favorite Old English words with the world. Um, and a word hoard in Old English is a word that refers to a sort of poet's stockpile or hoard of words. And this isn't a physical object or like a dictionary or a book or something. It's sort of their mental um, mental storage of words and phrases that they could pull up and use in, in their poetry when they're telling a story. And when you talk about a word hoard in Old English, you often talk about unlocking it. And it, there's this idea of sharing these valuable words with the world. So that's sort of what I was thinking of my book as, is a way of unlocking my personal word hoard. So the words that I've collected over the years um, that I've found interesting or puzzling or revealing in some way and sharing them with the world. So that's where the idea of the word hoard comes from. And that's why I call the book the word hoard. Um, and sort of, the second half of the title is Daily Life in Old English. And I've always been more interested in looking at daily life than sort of politics and sort of the big events that are going on in this chronology. I'm, I'm interested in what everyday people's lives were like. So in this book, I wanted to look not just at words, but words that tell us something about what people were doing at the time, what they were eating and drinking, what they were thinking about, where they were going, how they communicated with friends. And so, yeah, I organized the words in the book around that. And I share my favorite words, but I also bring in other words to help describe what life was like at the time. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. 
you begin with words for, for food and, and drink. And, and many of those old English words for food and drink are, are sort of familiar to us today, right? Like, like a, a cattle is old English word. Actually, yeah, it's fail. Fail is the word for, but coo, coo, the word coo is pretty much the same as cow. Um, mm -hmm. And it's still used in, you know, Scotland, coo. Um, so yeah, that's, that's familiar. There's other words that are similar, like chicken is chicken. Uh, okay. Sween is pig or swine. So yeah, swine. there's some that are, that are definitely quite similar. But, but, the, but the food tends to be French derived, right? Beef, mm -hmm. poultry, uh, yes. pork, uh, veal. Is calf Old English? Roughly? Calf is, yeah. Chalf is the word for calf in Old English. So yeah, um, that's something we, that we see in modern English is that uh, the words for the the farm animals are from Old English, but then once the food gets to the table, so to speak, it becomes um, influenced by French. Yeah. Well, when one person, I, I heard one person say that that is because in Middle English, uh, the the French, the Normans tended to be the aristocrats, and they controlled meat production, uh, meat consumption. You know, with the poaching laws and so on, so that you might have. English peasants raising the animals out in the fields, but when it comes into the table in the castle, it, it where, where where the Norman aristocrats are, they're speaking French, so the animal the, the food becomes French derived. Is is that a bogus explanation, or does that sound plausible? <laughs> I mean, I think that I mean, obviously, people were eating, you know, chicken and cow and. Yeah pig and all of these things before the Normans came along. They just didn't feel like there was a need to create another word for the thing. So they yeah. just, you know, if you talk about eating something, you talk about eating cow. And um, I mean, you see that in, in, in other language, modern languages today. Um, I lived in Korea for a while and the words for different kinds of meat, there, like the same animal as animal word that you would use for talking about the animal. So um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a feature of French that you have something, a different word. Certainly, um, you know, when the Normans came along, they were the ones that were in positions of power and probably tended to have more wealth. And maybe there was a bit more emphasis on that feasting aspect than they would probably have more meat on the table than, um, in, you know, than a farmer who's, you know, growing what they need to get by and stuff. So yeah, there's might be some something to that theory. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Good. You, you know what? You have a lot of interesting little phrases in here and, and the things that they signify. What is the quote trial by bite? <laughs> uh, Corsnad is the decision bite, uh, which is a trial that is referred to in some law codes in Old English. We don't know whether anyone actually did this. We don't have any evidence of it happening, um, as is the case with most laws of the time. But it's an interesting feature where they talk about different um, different ways to test for um, to test for innocence, and this one is this one requires you to take like to eat a mouthful of bread and cheese and 
not choke on it. And that is supposed to indicate that you are, if you, if you manage to do it without choking, then you are innocent. Um, which sounds very strange. And yeah, I go into that a bit and sort of different scholars theories on what, what this could be about. Um, I, I think it's unlikely that this particular method was used very much if ever, but it is an interesting sort of window into how people were thinking about things at the time. Uh, you, you, you have another chapter after this on, on time and the seasons. Do we see a lot of Old English conceptions and even words continuing into our, our world here? Um, I mean, there's definitely, uh, with you mean with the season's names or season's names or what sure. do you mean exactly? Sure. sure. Um, well, the names for seasons have pretty much stayed the same, um, summer, winter, um, but then we have some different ones like harvest uh, is the is what they would have called autumn. And that puts a bit more emphasis on, you know, the agricultural year, which maybe today a lot of us don't think about as much because not all of us are farming the way um, people would have been back then. Um, yeah. And, and the word for spring is is interesting because it's referring to. Uh, it's Lenten and it's referring to sort of length of the season, like the the lengthening of days. So that's a bit different too. Yeah. And the, yeah, the names for months are quite different as well. Um, yeah. I don't know how much you want me to talk about all that, but oh, yeah. It, uh, well, no, just, just, uh, 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 you know, some, some of the highlights. It's interesting that they, mm -hmm. they, they would understand the seasons like, like harvest would be more in terms of labor. Right, mm -hmm. the, the yeah. work one that one does at that time. One of the interesting labors that you talk about actually is writing. Uh, with with what tools did people in Old English write, and who was doing a lot of the writing? Yeah, so writing was a lot harder back then than it was today. I'm really glad I didn't have to write my book like this because you have to harvest, you know, a lot of sheep get it, the skins from the sheep and treat them so that you can use them to write on. Um, the the skins of the sheep or the sometimes goat uh, or calf would be used to create vellum or parchment. And that was quite a process. And then you need to, uh, like a feather, a, a writing feather or like a quill pen um, to actually write on the manuscripts. And you would have to make inks out of um, oak galls, which are these things that form on oak trees, um, that from the sort of the eggs of a, a kind of wasp. Huh. And that was quite a process to make those. Plus, if you wanted illustrations, there were, you had to gather all these different materials to create the pigments needed. Um, some of those were, you know, derived from organic materials. Some of them were more, um, minerals. Some of them were actually toxic, um, they, you know, they, they could kill you if you like, were exposed to it too much. Hmm. So yeah, it was a lot of work. And obviously it was, well, it was handwritten. So, uh, I mean, that's what the word, uh, the manu manuscript refers to. It's actually, you know, written by hand. And so, um, it was 
primarily monks and nuns who were copying this out, um, yeah. spending, you know, hours and hours and hours in a scriptorium, just copying out a text. So it was a huge endeavor. And that's part of the reason we don't have as many texts of that time period um, as we do after the printing press comes and makes things a lot easier. Yeah. You, you did note, yeah, nuns were, were heavily involved in the writing. What does the word hoard tell us about other labors performed by women in Old English? Um, well, we have some words that have specifically feminine endings. So it probably means that there were people, people involved in it. Like uh, there's the uh, common surname today is Baxter. And that comes from uh, Baxter, which is Old English for baker. But the <laughs> extra part of it is actually um, it's a it's a feminine ending. So it's it isn't necessarily referring to women, but the fact that they use the feminine ending is kind of interesting. Um, we get that with semestre, which is um, our modern English seamstress. So we get that same ending. Um, hmm. So you can learn from things like that. There's also uh, uh, there's the fact that the word lady comes from hlafdia, which means loaf, loaf maker or bread maker. So that was clearly important as well. Um, there's some historians who have written about how there's not a lot of discussion of certain agricultural tasks, um, like weeding, for instance, in Old English. And they theorize that this could partly be because these were tasks that were undertaken by women and were not written about as much in yep. the literature because of that, because they were not valued in the same way yep. um, by the men who were writing the texts. So, yeah. You, you, you say at one point, quote, the very existence of a word can tell you something about the people who use it. And, and I was thinking of some of the words that you pull up. What does the word, quote, tax fish mean? <laughs> and what does it reveal? Yeah, tax fish, uh, gavel fish, refers to fish that was collected for the purpose of taxes or tribute to a king. And it appears in an 11th century charter where this king, king, uh, king Canute, is gifting gavel fish to a particular abbey. And it's uh, what we call a, a hapax legomenon, which is a word that appears one time in literature. So it's not a common word, although it does appear in many different charters. So if a word appears in only one text, but there are many copies of that text, it's still a hapax legomenon. But anyway, the fact that we have a word gavelfish tells us that there was a way of that was a way of paying taxes was through fish. And there are other gavel words as well, like gavel berra for tax barley, uh, ale gavel, which is tax ale, honey gavel, so paying taxes in honey. So uh, there were a lot of different ways that you could that you could give give gavel to your um, to your king. Yep. Some of the words for body are are pretty good in in here. I, I quote it, wrote some of them down. Uh, bone house. Mm -hmm. uh, that, I mean, that's how they'd be translated, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, literally, flesh covering. Well, one one of the terms 
really amounts to, quote, a receptacle for dirt, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. What does that say? I mean, how do they conceive of the human body with yeah. these terms? Gre- that one's kreathord, which is like, kreat is sort of like our modern English word grit. So it's a hoard mm. of grit or a hoard of earth. And that refers to, well, first of all, the idea that we, we come from the earth, like we are created from earth but also the fact that um, at the end of our lives, we will return to the earth and our soul will go elsewhere, hopefully heaven. But the idea is that it, it makes you remember that your you know, physical embodied existence is, is temporary. And that's why they, they use that particular term. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, you, you go into one interesting thing about the old English version of Genesis, mm-hmm. which is in some ways darker than, than other version. For instance, one way of speaking of the tree is not the tree of knowledge, but quote, the death tree. Mm-hmm. What, what do we, what do we infer from, from that version of Genesis in old, in old England? Yeah, well, Death Bam, the death tree, as it it's called, is yeah, it's ref- it's referring to what we call often call the knowledge of the tree of knowledge or the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the reason it's called a death tree is because it's the tree that brought death into the world. Like before that, there was there was not sort of this limit on human lifespan. But then once you know humans ate from this tree then i mean adam still lived to be very very old but he did have a he was mortal he didn't have he wasn't able to live forever um and so yeah that's why you have this this very dark sounding term death bam there are there are many many other things in in the book uh talk about you know the the goblins and elves devils warlocks there, there's an interesting kind of lake woman in, in, <laughs> yeah. in lots of words about, about, about death, uh, about blood burials, uh, about, about the soul. Uh, but I, but I recommend our listeners go to that. The book is the word hoard daily life in old English. Hannah Vidine, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.